Hey, Pump Talk people, this is Al Philries. In the episode, you're about to hear number 171 in our monthly series. Our discussion of Eugene Ostashevsky's poems take us to the great Ostashevskyan topics of knowledge otherwise somehow alienated, of language that embodies a kind of violence, of the difference between knowing and saying no, and their similarities, and his sincere and no doubt Russian absurdist-influenced plea to teach us love, teach us love, teach us love, even though we are wholly unfamiliar with it, quote-unquote. Because the episode was recorded before the February 24, 2022 Russian military invasion of Ukraine, listeners will have to reckon for themselves the many places in our conversation when we would no doubt have commented on the war and on the role of the avant-garde Russian-American poet in relation to Russian cultures, historical and contemporary. So now on to the show. I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Pen Sound archive, writing.upen.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Arts Cafe in person by Kevin Platt, Professor of Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pennsylvania right here at Penn, where he directs the periodic Russian-American Poetry Translation Symposium called Your Language, My Ear, whose scholarly work focuses on Russian poetry, culture, and history, and who is the author or editor of several books, the most recent of which is Global Russian Cultures, and whose book, Border Conditions About Russian Culture in Latvia, is, as we record this episode, in the final stages of preparation. And by Ahmad Amala, a poet whose amazing first book of poems, Bitter English, was published by the University of Chicago Press, who is also a specialist in Arabic poetry and has written a book about Arabic love poetry called Pure and Sensual, who is a member of the faculty here at Penn in the Creative Writing Program at the Center for Programs in contemporary writing, and will soon have a major essay, a reflection on teaching Arabic poetry in the U.S. and other matters coming out in Poetry Magazine. And by Matvey Yankalevich, poet, translator, and editor whose publications include, take a breath, Al, Some Worlds for Dr. Vote, Alpha Donut, Boris by the Sea, Today I Wrote Nothing, The Selected Writings of Daniel Carms, and most recently, the chapbooks from A Winter Notebook and Dead Winter, and who back in the 90s co-founded the now legendary Ugly Duckling Press, producing a variety of books, chapbooks, periodicals, and broadsides, co-edited 6x6 Magazine, and curated the Eastern European Poet Series, and who teaches translation and book arts at Columbia University's School of the Arts. Matvey, so good to have you back here in Philadelphia. Actually, to be have here. you been much to the writer's house? A few times, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm sure I've been here with Eugene, actually. I think we did a reading or some kind of talk. Yes. Um, and then here for Your Language, My Ear a few times, uh, sometimes in this space. Yeah. Um, 
a oh. bunch of times. And we were on Poem Talk together, but that was in Boston. Yes, I joined you in Boston in, a, in the studio, Boston studios of Poem Talk um, <laughs> with, uh, to talk about Ann Lauder back that time. That was great. That was a great episode. Fantastic. Kevin, good to see you. Super to see you all. Let the record show that Kevin over the holiday has decided to go Trotsky on us with a nice big beard. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> Am I the first one to say it look like, you look like Trotsky? I think so. You know, people come up with different things. Um, I've been given... Um, Lenin, Trotsky, Kamenev. I think that, you know, with the waxed mustache like this, it's actually closer to Stalipin, um, the uh, minister of the interior who was assassinated in an opera in, in 1911. Um, but <laughs> and you respect the more obscure comparisons, I take it. Absolutely. And then there was Freud. Somebody on Facebook said there was... All right, yeah, a mix of Trotsky and Freud. That, that was me. Was that you? <laughs> yes. <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> Ahmad, congratulations on the poetry piece. Do you have a one-sentence description of the thing? You just finished it. It's hot. I don't. I uh, read the whole thing when it comes out. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, today, the four of us have gathered here to talk about two poems by Eugene Ustashevsky. They are The Anatomy of Monotony and Language. Those are the titles of the two poems. And they were performed together and recorded at the Bowery Poetry Club in New York City on July 26th. 2005. The entire reading is available at Penn Sound's Ostashevsky page, along with a treasure trove of Ostashevskyana. I just made that up. But it is a treasure trove. Uh, two, the two poems that we've chosen appear in print in 2000, the year 2000, in the chapbook The Unraveler Seasons, published by Eugene Timmerman in San Francisco. So here now is Eugene Ostashevsky performing The Anatomy of Monotony and Language. There were two of us there, me in despair. I resembled a salad that resembled a mallard. It resembled a parrot that resembled a pirate that resembled an island that resembled an island that in its turn resembled something either assembled or disassembled. We watched my life retreat, ebb and diminish, and I said in my incomplete English, should I bulge my cheeks with silence? Should I devolve to a fish or maybe a clam since I already am invertebrate? Despair said, prate, don't prate. No one will hear. I cramped 1,085 roller skates into the collective ear. I said, excuse me, despair, are you really there? When we banter, are we like the poles of a centaur? Or are you totally other than me? If one woman wed us, would it be bigamy? Despair said it would be anomy. I said, you just said that because it rhymes. You're only an echo. You don't really exist. I can do anything. I can be all that I can be. Despair showed me its tallow fangs. Despair showed me its fallow clangs. Despair showed me its callow tanks. It showed me its trunks. It showed me its yanks. It must have thought it pointless to argue. Language. You look like a soup. You eat like a meal. Around you, various figures steal. They steal. They wave their arms, they wave their legs, they eat stir-fried dogs, 
They popped eyeballs with wooden pegs. It smashed corpses. They burned corpses. No scent worses. You move them. You approve them. Illusionists, you remove them. What is death? What is pain? What is what? You do not explain. Oh, breath, we say to you, teach us love. Teach us love. Teach us love. Teach us love. You say, no reads no. That's all you know. That's all you do not know. We say, teach us love. Teach us love. Teach us love. Teach us love. We're wholly unfamiliar with it. Matvey, you were smiling the whole time. So the tonally, these are a pair. They may be about content-wise different things, but tonally, they're a pair. What is that tone? Why were you smiling? Well, I don't know. It's en- It's no matter how long I've known Eugene's work, and I, I think some of these poems were included also in literature, which came out with UDP in the early 2000s. So you edited uh, so they published it. Yeah, so they weren't just in the chapbooks. They came out again, and... And these are chapbooks I've had in my collection, which are pretty, I guess there were a hundred copies of each. Um, and th- anyway, th- this stuff never fails to elicit a certain smile or laugh uh, for me. Um, and partly I think there might be uh, a certain understanding of Eugene's humor and also its literary lineage that particularly gets me. Um, uh, since we both worked on translating the Oberu poets and a lot of the conversations we've had since the late 90s about those poets, Daniel Harms, Alexander Videnski in particular, you know, are about things that actually merge in these poems, techniques, uh, illusions, uh, kind of ironic references, um, not to mention uh, the sort of immigrant perspective on language, which we both share and we've talked about quite a lot. So, so uh, a smile of familiar appreciation, and I know that voice. The voice—it's a voice you know well. So. And it's really funny. It is, okay, <laughs> His it's performance really funny. is over the top. So let's go to over the top, Ahmad. Uh, over the top performance. You two were smiling. Well, I mean, they, they are. Uh, there is all this kind of language play that is happening uh, throughout the two poems. Uh, the anatomy of monotony uh, even interrupts the play with the with the metapoetic gesture of asking about the rhymes. But what amazed me about the two pieces is that by the end, like, it's dead serious. So it's like... Teach us love, teach us love. Yeah, I, th- I thought that was, that was really... We are wholly unfamiliar with it. So I, I really like this kind of playfulness that you have to kind of follow throughout till the very end of the poem. It felt like this is a very difficult uh, kind of poem to pull off. Mm. And in both instances they were uh performed and uh to the very last gesture of 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 seriousness and success i think for a poetic text kevin matve referred to a lineage he was hearing you know in this voice and in this tone um can you take that up and talk a little bit about what's in the back 
round of this kind of voice, this kind of rhetoric, poetic rhetoric? Well, you know, Matvey, first of all, pointed to the Russian absurdist poets that both Eugene and Matvey have translated, and they translated together some things. Um, and there's definitely that taste for absurdism. And it also should be said that, you know, Eugene has been thinking about these questions, you know, questions of language philosophy since doing his PhD at Stanford. Um, and it would be easy to assimilate this, these were written in the 1990s, to kind of a, um, you know, sort of a postmodern stance towards language, blah, 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 blah. But it's totally wrong, I think, to do that. He's um, much be wrong closer. wrong of us, critically. To, yeah, to he's much that. closer mm -hmm. to the Abiru poets um, or to other members of the Russian avant-garde who were invested in this idea that if you deform language enough, that reality is going to seep through in a different way, that there's going to be a kind of a magic involved with realigning the way that words relate to the world, which is going to allow them to better, more capaciously somehow allow us to grab hold of the world. And I think that that's what's going on, or one of the things which is going on in this poem, you know, teach us love, teach us love, teach us love. Um, we're wholly unfamiliar with it. Um, this hope somehow that all of these possible identities which are set up in the poem would somehow align if we like jiggle them in the right way. He doesn't get us there. Or repeat them enough. Yeah. So defamiliarize love to the point where we have to freshly think about it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the other like 90s reference that's going is no, no reads no, um, which is a reference. It's like a, a rewriting of no means no, which is, you know, another identity tautological statement in English, which is, which in the 90s was unable to actually make sense of people's human relations, right? It's like, it's, you want no to actually mean mo, but very often it didn't, it still doesn't. Um, and that was the problem with no means no. And he's, he's playing with that and saying, well, we actually have to like somehow figure out how to make this language work in a way which will allow us to grab hold of what's really important, death, love, pain, those things. Um, so that's kind of where I am. With, with it language. turns out that language doesn't know, <laughs> doesn't know, or that's all you know. That's all you do not know. And the whole beginning of that poem is like language is, it, it's it's a it's an illusionist, right? And it's uh, it also it you know it doesn't explain what is death, what is pain, right? What is what? So it it's in itself very much like language is this hell that you're in with these you know these people poking out your eyeballs and and uh smashing and like burning corpses and stuff which which are part of what language both makes happen approves hides from view and so forth so it's almost this like this hell of language and then it's like oh breath we say to you teach us love breath is equated here like the you becomes both language and breath they're like equated very Mandelstamian kind of equation yeah and then um to me that that's like this also anger at language this is videnski and also anger or futurist anger at language we're going to break language comes from you know because it it can't handle what we need from need it to do right yeah. um uh, which I think is, you know, in this, yet we plead with it, you know. Exactly. And we're hoping still that, like, breath, inspiration is going to get us there. But it's not going to be as easy as it was for Keats, right? It's not that's all you know. Right. And Right. But it's that's all you know, and that's all you don't know, too. It's, yeah. a, it's a bit of a quote from Keats. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Ahmad mentioned that it's hard to pull this off, and I think that's true. Um, he begins the anatomy of monotony with a series of homophonic pairs that cause the absurdity of salad having something to do with mallard and parrot having something to do with pirate, although that works really well because I imagine a parrot on the shoulder of a pirate, island and eyelid. So starting with Ahmad, how do we deal, how do we hear these homophonic pairs as creating some kind of meaning or do they just sit there and don't create meaning? Is there a relationship? Yeah. You think of yourself as an exophonic poet, right? So, you know, a poet choosing to write, you know, you're, not, you're not writing, mostly you're not writing in Arabic, you're writing in English. So the, the reference to incomplete English follows from all this play that is the play, faux language learning, <laughs> you know, pretending to be amazed at how salad and mallard go together in English. And I think, you know, the idea of referring metapoetically to the inc my incomplete English makes you think back on the origin of that playfulness. Does that make any sense? I, th I think, yeah, I think that makes sense. Uh, where these are, uh, before they are words that carry uh, meaning, they're completely new sounds. And uh, that is fascinating. Uh, it's, they're not only new uh, uh, words, but they're actually sounds that you haven't heard before. They're just uh, jumbles of sounds that are not available in uh, for you uh, from uh, the background that you you came from. Right. And and, and that's uh, that's fascinating, I, I think. And uh, and that's why I think when you hear these new sounds, they also attach a sort of an imaginary meaning to them. And you start thinking sometimes, and this is what I did uh, when I started learning English, is that f for a while, island, for example, would be stuck in my head as meaning spoon. And I would go with it. Spoon? Yeah, for example. But there was, there was a time and when... Why is that? Is be there an... Because, I, because it's such a new sound that I would attach it to a, a, an image that belongs to that sound in my head. <laughs> and and that that ma that makes it uh, completely something else. Uh, so for 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 a while, uh, speaking of something, uh, I guess Russian for, for uh, or re a reference to a re I, re I read a lot of uh, Russian uh, uh, novels when I came to the United States in order to learn English better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why and in not? translation, because I just, I, you know, I was drawn to Dostoevsky and that kind of uh, stuff. Stuff. It happens. Yeah. And I was reading. To learn not, English from Dostoevsky. Yeah. And then uh, when I heard the word spatula, I thought this must be, this must be the thing that you drink whiskey from. This is a flask. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. it, it, it sounds like the tool for drinking alcohol and I went with it for a while I thought spatula is the flask for <laughs> serve me up a spatula <laughs> <whiskey>. exactly <laughs> I love that 
Yeah, way, this this, <laughs> this I, 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 I can't wait to turn to you on this because not only do you think about where Ostashevsky's, I mean, he, he came over here to the U.S. quite early, so, you know, English is not, it's a second language, but it's, a, it's quite natural at this point when he's writing this. But still, when you read, and I said in my incomplete English, you know, there's a nod to the freshness of having a second language. Not only that, but you're an expert in whatever you're about to say because you work with him on translation. Have you ever translated any of this back into Russian? I, I have so. not, but there are translations of Sashevsky's work back into Russian, which is really interesting. And there's a lot of it's difficult work to do that. Um, and some great translators, poets have, have worked with him on that. But... Um, I was going to say that there's, of course, the language learning, there's a certain kind of outsiderness and a certain kind of provocative uh, aspect to this because the lyric poem in English is associated always with a kind of sense of mother tongue of, uh, and, and there's a lot of bias against writers writing, you know, in a new, in, in an adopted language. And Eugene was 11 when he came here and he had, he also kind of, uh, I think embraces his accent and his manner uh, Certainly in these, these performances, performances right? especially the early performances. Uh, even now, though, he still does that by slowing down. He's not as loud, but he's actually slower and kind of more methodical. So you get that kind of metronomic quality that you hear in this in this early work. You hear it in uh, the copses, the copses, corpses. Uh, no scent worse is you know like that kind of almost mechanical, robotic sound. Uh, but uh, I think there's, um, there's another poem that I uh, remembered that where he says, uh, um, he says that he has no native language. It's this, I'll read these four lines. In my head I heard melodies. I deformed rhymes, misscanned syllables. But I have no native language. I can't judge. I suspect I write garbage. And this is, you know, like if you're writing in a new language, do you, how do you know whether you're writing garbage or not? And, uh, and I think that this is part of, you know, this thing that's occupied Eugene for a long time. I mean, there's, which is what do you do without a mother tongue, without a native language, um, where you aren't writing in your so-called native language? I would just add that um, you know, there's also this intertextual play, not only with other, a lot of Russian literature and, and styles of, uh, and, and with English literature, but, uh, well, the, the anatomy of melancholy is suggested here, of course, with the anatomy of monotony and then despair, but, um, but, and the Keats, but also so much Russian literature that's hidden from the American reader, right? So it's kind of an in-joke or an insider language in, in, in a private kind of, uh, joke, perhaps, but it does something to the English, which is to, to absurdify these connections. And the rhymes, for me, the rhymes that you were asking Ahmad about are a, a Videnskian function where you just decide that the, the, the content is going to be determined by rhyme rather than the, the other way around. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Kevin, um, I th one of your main interests as a poetry person as a scholar of the avant-garde is the potential freedom counterintuitively that comes from the claim that 
uh, the, the, I have incomplete English, or even more radically, I don't have a native language. Does to the extent that that's true, that one can derive some freedom, form formal freedom, or uh, vocabularistic freedom, or uh, you know, a freedom from making sense. Um, to to the extent that that's true, do you find it here? And is that one of the pleasures that this gives you? Is this is a particularly these are early poems, and maybe it's less of a factor later. I think it becomes more of a factor later, right? Like later. Ostashevsky, he gets more polyglot, first of all. He goes off and spends a lot of time living in Europe and acquires pretty good French and pretty passable Italian and German, and he starts writing simultaneously in all those languages um, and using them to deform one another, as well as the Russian. Hmm. Um, these ones feel pretty much like American poems to me by comparison with his later stuff. The other thing is rap. He was thinking about a lot in the 1990s, and you can read a lot of these lines as rap lines. But, you know, freedom to write garbage and then to call it good, I think, is the thing. It's like you are freed from tastes a little bit if you, like, just admit that you're not going right. to submit this to some from native taste, language yeah. set of functors yeah. and do your own thing, which I think is what is part of the key. To so it does verge on, though it's not obscene in any way, but it does verge on tasteless, the comparisons. Yeah. What is death? What is pain? What is what? You do not explain, oh breath. We say to you, teach us love, teach us love, teach us love, teach us love. You say, no reads no, that's all you know, that's all you do not know. Let's turn to language for a second. So, uh, you know, it's uh, the year 2000 is when the comes out in the chapbook, uh, although discussion in the U.S. avant-garde of language, language poetry, precedes that by some years. But if you hear a poem called Language, you begin to think, okay, how metapoetic is this? But then, Ahmad, they appear at the beginning of that poem. Uh, language, you look like a soup and you eat like a meal. Around you, various figures steal. Okay, so if he's addressing language, then language is a thing surrounded by figures, ominously, who steal. And then they steal, they wave their arms. Can we un try to understand, is they sinister? Who are, these, who are these various figures, and what do they have to do with the plaint at the end? Uh, the longing for love or wanting to be taught. And is it language still being addressed by the time we get to teach us love? Language, teach us love. You know, is he still addressing language? What do you do with the they? Sorry to throw this at you. I just feel that language as one is not a very constructive kind of stance for a poet. Language as something more than one, as something that even even though you're working with your own language as something you're translating back and forth between yourself is, is more accurate about the process of writing because there can't be any writing without the, the process of translation. And, and as long as we refer to the language as multiple, not as one, then we are closer to the actual process of writing 
than thinking that it's one and it's one even with the body that is expressing it because there's no way that that's possible mm-hmm. and i think the uh i think that might be a, a a key to reading the appearance of they so they steal uh and it's i i i think it's it's actually uh, fascinating to have language being referred to as they at the same time so matve there's a, they are causing all kinds of ruckus here uh they're waving their arms they're, and they're eating stir-fried dogs and now we have corpses burned some kind of atrocity yeah i i have my my interpretation of it is is actually i mean i i agree totally with ahmad that there was there's a uh a problem with the singularity of language. But my interpretation of the they was really more along political lines, that language is a political instrument that that is making these um, kind of, these acts possible. It also is, is making the poetic act possible, which itself, in Eugene's case, is a kind of, in, in a kind of transgression um, from one language subjectivity into another and uh but to me they these they's were were opposed to the we's you know we say to you you know so who are the we's we are left out of language the they are the ones that are operated by language or stealing uh stealing meaning like stealing you know kind of they're around but he repeats it so you get both meanings of steal like they might be you know lurking and they might be actually thieving something. And to me, this is this hell. Like, they burn corpses. No scent worse is, which is itself a corruption of the syntax of English, right? Um, but the fact that you, language, move them, you approve them, illusionist, you remove them, or you, in other words, you hide them from view, Um to me, or you maybe get rid of them altogether. So language is in control. Language is politically, potentially vi- uh, violent, um, and so so on. So I take it you're saying partly that the violence is the cause of the degradation or the uh, reversal of knowledge of language. You know, no scent worse is is kind of the result of that violent derangement. Yeah, and no reads no no reads no is funny because it's what the immigrant has trouble with in terms of homonyms. How do you right. know that like W? Why is it is it a vowel? Is it not a vowel? What is up with W? What is up with K N? Like what? How do you understand silent letters if you right. come from Russian? Right? So knowledge like, means <laughs> negativity, you know. unless you understand. Uh, Kevin. Uh, what happens? I was thinking about what Matvey was saying about violence and language, and I was thinking about some of Bob Perlman's poems from the 70s where mm-hmm. he's doing similar kinds of things that to what Eugene is doing. The first line, you look like a soup, you eat like a meal, or the second line. Um, it's like an advertising mm-hmm. jingle, um, and it, it reminds me of some of Perlman's sort of early play with that sort of thing that then suddenly turns out to be about the Vietnam War. 
Um, yeah, and I saying? think there's some kind of weird thing with the you there that who is, you know, is it you look like a soup that one eats or is the verb eat being uh, no longer transitive but this kind of, you know, intransitive like reversal is the thing that is eaten so there's a lot of actually like a lot of meat on that bone so to speak like because the kinds of problems that an uh, a learner of english has with the ambiguities of english syntax are right there in in those verbs and those u's and etc right and so the soup, if you it's like is, it's an alphabet soup, really. Yeah, we're alphabet about. soup, and also it's, it's taking soup you back to childhood, like this poor Russian immigrant <laughs> yeah. looking at his alphabet soup and trying <laughs> yeah. to like put it together in words. Yeah. But the figures are they inside or around, or are they are, are they just figures of speech, which are in language yes, and running figures. around doing all of this like awful work? Exactly, and they're um, distracting you and they're causing violence. Various figures, rhetorical figures. Right? So yeah. The if you so language is being addressed, so you could be language, but it could also be the speaker addressing himself you move them you approve them this is what you yeah. the writer could be does could and if be. that's right ahmad illusionist calling yourself the speaker calling himself illusionist that's very much in line with what the poet is trying to achieve to escape from the kind of actual violence that's here uh, I, I want to ask you about that, but I also want to get to teach us love, teach us love, because you're the one who said at the beginning that this poem gets kind of serious at the end, so feel free to go there if you want to talk about what he's saying with this repeated refrain. What I read, for the most part, is the language play, is the language performing all of this, uh, all of this violence. Uh, I didn't think of the they as kind of sort of like a political external forces. I thought the pronouns uh, could be referring to language, whether it's you or they, and they're just the nature of language. You just can take it from figures of steel and then they steal. That kind of associative language just kicks in and then uh, the, the language becomes they and then goes back to you. Uh, now, illusionist you uh, could be also the language that is being illusionist. Mm-hmm. And then? And then the, uh, the interesting is that we say, we say to you. So <laughs> language is performing all of these kind of tricks, and maybe we say to you, teach us love, teach us love, teach us love. Meaning stop with the tricks already. Kevin, what in language or about language caused us to be unfamiliar with love? If that's the case, how did we get to this point? And is that is that Ostashevsky's point? We are o- wholly unfamiliar with it because why? Because language has enabled all this atrocity and violence, or because of all this illusion? Is he trying to strip us clean of that? Assume this is assuming we take the the end the end of the poem seriously. Well, I think we do take the end of the poem seriously. Um, and once again, I think I can only just agree with Ahmad here that it's like the problem is, you know, if language is this very complicated structure full of all kinds of other people's um, figures that steal our experience from us, that actually are, you know, giving us preformed no means no's that don't actually work when we actually want to 
communicate about love, right? We don't want to have to like do the protocol. Um, we want to actually communicate with people um, and see into their souls. That's what we want to do with language, right? Um, but language is getting in the way of that. Exactly. Once again, it, like it drives me all the way back towards like the you know the twenties and the thirties. It sounds like you know a, a manifesto from that period, which Eugene was deeply reading into at this time. And it also like it reminds you of Wittgenstein a bit with language games. What Ahmad was saying, and I just know we were all reading Wittgenstein in the nineteen nineties too. Yeah, and the soup is actually like a bury you reference, a little buried harms reference. So, you know, this that's a kind of a constant nineteen twenties. Language and soup is a trope in the Oberu poets. So you get that. Yeah, but I, I might also kind of add, like that when we think about poetry, uh, we think about language that saves itself from being language in the sense that it takes language from the familiar and it defamiliarizes language in a way that we haven't we we experience it as though we're we're experiencing it for the first time in a way teach us love teach us love teach us love is you know teach us how to say the poetic thing not the fucking bullshit <laughs> exactly yeah do you think one last question before we do final thoughts i'm stuck on kevin's uh idea literary historical idea really um, that at this point he's looking back to the 20s, he's looking back to modernism with its greatest radical hopes, that period, all those manifestos and so forth. Such an interesting move to make at the end of the 90s. Um, the, I didn't mean for you to give us a literary historical background, although that would be, I highly recommend that, sitting around with Kevin Platt and hearing that, but I'm really asking about what is that? Is it a re-radicalization? Is it a skipping over the 60s, 50s, and 40s to try to get back to some kind of immaculate modernism that, no, right? Mm -mm. Is it, it's not nostalgic. It's mm. a kind of re-energizing. What, what is it? How can you generalize about this attitude? There's so many references back here. We have to do something with it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I can say something about how it seems to have been a part of Eugene's literary evolution since then, too, right? He has always been searching for a way to get to this direct speech with you know, mm. sincere emotion and, and mm. sincere contact with people to like get outside of somehow the figures the and into your heart. Mm. Um, and he's gone through a lot of cycles with this, too. So it's like those personae poems were like at his most ironic, I think, for like a number of years in the 2000s where he was always writing in someone else's voice continuously. Um, although there are moments in those that are so beautifully poignant that like the end of um, the Morris and Pasternak, right? The um, philosopher who became a violinist who would come every Sunday to play <laughs> first movement, love, second movement, love and loss, third movement, just loss, <laughs> which gets me every time. I love it so much. Um, but then he's actually come out the other side of that. And his more recent stuff is extraordinarily direct, even though it's written in this polyglot way. 
the um, sonnets yeah the, yeah, the feeling sonnets the are feeling really sonnets. full of feeling coming um, out soon i think yeah there feeling should be a, straightforward yeah, well, not know, straightforward te- but te- feeling teach us love yeah, except that, so here, there's that combination, right? He's got this, like, ironic word, wordplay, which then ends in this direct speech, where, like, suddenly yes. the rhymes go away. Um, we're totally unfamiliar with it. And well, it's not just homonymic, it is synonymic. It's the same line four times in a row, twice. Look, mm-hmm. I was I was mm-hmm. trying to get you to say, but you didn't agree with this, which is fine, what this gesture means to go back to a previous period. And when I, when I think of that in the anatomy of monotony, I think of, should I devolve to a fish? Yes! Um, or rather a clam, a clam, since I already am invertebrate. Uh, there is a kind of funny longing to be a simpler being. And I think of the first wave of manifesto-driven modernism as that clearing, as so many of them use the metaphor of clearing the field, wiping out the mountains, getting started over again. And that's the impulse that I'm hearing. And the devolving into a fish sounds like a really good idea for a human poet. Anyway, I'll just throw that yeah. out there. I mean, I, I think it's what unlikely I'm there. <laughs> that uh, de-evolution or devolution is uh, an interesting, like, also intertextual kind of connection to Mandelstam, especially in the mid-30s, dealing with, um, you know, in poems like Lamarck, he's dealing with evolutionary ideas, but he's also thinking about origins, and it even goes back to early Mandelstam uh, when, the sea, when the word becomes the sea foam in that, in that poem uh, about Aphrodite, um, language kind of devolving and also the idea of the, the the human body itself going back or like tracing this kind of geological, also biological moment. And I think there's like a funny hidden reference to that here. Uh, but I also see this deflation, this always Ostashevskian mode at the end of the each poem, right? The deflation into prose, but also the deflation of I guess there was just nowhere to go with this conversation. <laughs> um, it was pointless to argue, or we we're unfamiliar with it. Um, uh, that's partly an Oberiu gesture of moving from building to oblivion, like to <clears throat> a nothing at the end, a zero, but also uh, a very Prigov, Dmitri Prigov kind of postmodern way of destabilizing formal Russian poetry by adding this final quippy, short usually, and rhythmically on non-matching line that sort of both highlights the formality or the, the, the sort of uh, constructedness of what preceded, but also deflates the whole poem. It's also very Harmsian. Like, yeah, that movement that to nothing. Referring so. to Dan- I- Daniel Har- Harms. Yeah, Daniel Harms, which who Matvey has translated so brilliantly, and and Eugene a little bit, um, but the that uh, you know this crazy series of absurd happenings, and at the end it's like, but I wasn't interested in that. I went the other way. <laughs> it's that deflation, yeah, and the well, kind of acknowledgement of a literary a device that has occurred, that has been played out, yeah, and emptied. And there we go. We're done. <laughs> 
in this poem, there's a moment where despair says, pray, don't pray, no one will hear. So that's that kind of stop with the BS. But then, right afterwards, look what he does. I crammed 1,085 roller skates into the collective ear. Absolutely wild move after <laughs> like that devolution of don't pray. Well, look, let's go around for final thoughts. Uh, one thing that you meant to say today, but you didn't have a chance to about either of these two poems or about anything. So who wants, who's got a final thought ready? Uh, yeah, I'll, you know, I think imagistically, like the anatomy of monotony, uh, like it's it's interesting how it kind of uh, develops into this monster at the at the end, uh, and you can trace it like imagistically, like it kind of moves from like the just pure uh, language play. To actually, uh, you know, referring to uh, these like creatures, the uh, you know, our combination between human and monster, human and animal, and uh, then at the very end, uh, I thought that was very very smart. I can do anything. I can be all that I can be, and then we get this description of despair becoming this monstrous figure. Uh, and 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 the, and then we have this kind of like end of the conversation gesture. Mm. Uh, so I thought, like even imagistically, like it 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 starts with this language play, but then the language play is is kind of building into something that you can you can really imagine if you put your mind to it. Mm. Uh, and. Uh, I, th I thought it was really brilliant. I mean, I could imagine like a monstrous figure kind of sitting in front of me and saying, that's it, we're going to end this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. No Ta more words. <laughs> the Talafangs, the Falloclangs, the Calotanks, and it's Yanks. Is Yanks is a gesture of pulling, but also a reference to Americans, I guess. I don't know. Kevin, final thought? Oh, I don't, I don't have like very concrete final thoughts, apart from the fact that I absolutely adore Eugene's poetry. And I think everyone who's listening to this should go out and like absorb a bunch more of it. Um, he's gone so far as a poet. These are great. And his later stuff is equally great. And much of it can be purchased online. And I think everyone should go out and support the publishers of that stuff and buy some of these books. Wonderful, great final thought. Matvey. Uh, from what Ahmad would say, was saying about, I just was recognizing how this poem really does animate despair. It really does sink in and think about that thing that is both part of you and beside you and not letting you go further, right? And that, that these poems are really funny and silly at and it, and it performed so um, uh, in an over-the-top kind of manner. But actually, they this poem is really about depression, despair, melancholy, which it implies in the title. Um, but it, the thing doesn't go away. We might stop talking, despair and I, but it doesn't go away. It shows its fangs. Mm -hmm. and um, And I was thinking of that in relationship to the 
this rhyme generating thing or the the idea of resemblance itself is thematized in that um in that thing about it resembled this and that resembled that and be, it's the rhyming thing about resemblance it is resemblance it is rhyme but it, then it resembles almost anything so it's also the despair of not being able to tell anymore this from that right <laughs> nice wow uh I've saved this idea for my final thoughts because during final thoughts, nobody gets to rebut. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it'll happen. But I... Just you, try something out. Okay. Well, I just... I had such a, a strong political reading of language. Uh, no scent worse is. That is the smell of burning co corpses. Essentially, it's a reference to mass killing and genocide here. And what is the relationship between language and the problems of language and that outcome. And every time Kevin and others referred to his interest in the pre-World pre War II, pre-super-atrocity pre moment of modernism with all of its kind of weird hope in starting over freshly and its hope for language. And, you know, clearly language didn't save us from what happened in, in the 30s and in, during World War II. So... Rather than dwell too much of that, I thought I would just, for my final thought, read a poem, a prose poem published in the Poetry Project in 2017 as follows, and it is very much a political poem. A certain pirate, <laughs> a certain pirate had concern for his health, and so he emigrated to Germany. It was there he learned the best technique of effective hand washing. Germans wash their hands in the following manner, which is the best. First, they take one hand, which can be the left or the right. Here, the handler performs a, and this word is all one English word, discrimination avoidings effort. Then they take another hand. Then using the second hand, they wash the first hand. And only then do they use the first hand to wash the second hand. It is never the other way around. That's the technique. That's how they do it in Germany. As a result of this technique, there are very few germs, capital G, there are very few germs left in Germany. <laughs> what a fucking brilliant poem about language and possibly about the capacity for atrocity, I'm not yeah. sure, and about cleanliness and obsession and Ostashevsky. Wow, the politics is so, so profound. COVID, too. Oh, yes, it's even a COVID poem. <laughs> Oppression. It's even a COVID poem. Well, uh, we like to end poem talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for you to spread wide your narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail mm -hmm. or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world or the art world or the essay writing world or whatever. Matvey, you temporarily forgot about Gathering Paradise, but you've had an hour to think about it. I, got I, one? I, I had an hour to, uh, to only think about Eugenia Staszewski. Uh I do recommend a book I read recently uh, of poems uh, translated from Polish um, by, it's translated from Polish by Jennifer Groats and Piotr Sommer uh, and uh, published by World Poetry Books. And the author is Jerzy Fitzowski, uh, who was a specialist on uh, Bruno Schultz, a favorite of mine, one of, one of the first poems 
people to really write and actually gathered a lot of his letters and drawings before they were published in order to publish them. Uh, and also worked on uh, Roma folklore and Jewish folklore in Poland and did all sorts of amazing things and was in the resistance. I didn't know anything about Jerzy Fisowski. So I, I, I was fascinated. But the poems are awesome. And they have a bit of this absurd humor that we were talking about What today. a great recommendation. Would you spell the last yes. name or try to? Uh, I can, I think. Um, J-E-R-Z-Y, Jerzy. And Fitzowski is F-I-C-O-W-S-K-I. And the book that came out recently, Everything I Don't Know. Great recommendation. Ahmad Amala, what do you think? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend uh, Eugene Ostashevsky. <laughs> I'm, this is the first time that I actually uh, uh, read uh, uh, Eugene's work, and I'm I'm really uh, uh, fascinated by this, and uh, I want to read a lot a whole lot more. Uh, so, Kevin, what what is the next book that Ahmad should read? What's your recommendation for? Not just for him, but for our audience. Well, I think the feeling sonnets is where I would start too. That Matvey suggested, and there is a chat book which I just noticed is available on Amazon. But there's supposed to be a book coming out, and I couldn't figure out who it is is publishing it. With there are a whole ton of feeling sonnets. The chat book only contains like ten or fifteen of them. Um, if you're in, if you don't want to like go out for a book, there were selections that were published in Granta in 2019, I believe. Um, and somewhere else. So if you look for Ostashevsky and the feeling sonnets, you can get them. Good but then enough. I would also go back and get Iterature or the Off Centaur or... The Off Centaur. The Off Centaur. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's so, great. So you, you were into this. I'm, I'm uh, but, very much. I, 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 you should have sent these to me uh, uh, way earlier than this. Yeah. I, I, I love this stuff. This is wonderful. It, okay. it does remind me of like even earlier stuff that I was writing, that I, you know, haven't published, and I, I thought maybe nobody would be interested in. But that But now account. you know there's a market for it. Well, we don't, I don't know about market, but we're trying to create yeah. a market. Yeah, we're working on that. Kevin yeah. Platt, Gather Paradise. All right, I want to recommend a, um, a volume that came out a couple of months ago from Deep Vellum that I was involved with. I know it's shameless self-promotion, but it's not because of me. I was just a translator, um, and there were a bunch of other translators, too. Uh, it's called Verses on the Vanguard, Russian Poetry Today, and it's a collection of a number of you know pretty experimental poets who had, have not been previously translated into English. Um, Maria Galina, Ekaterina Simova, uh, Simonova, Ivan Sokolov, Nikita Sungatov, Alexander Tsibulia, um, and Oksana Vasyakina, um, who has been translated a bit. But um, many of these others actually are appearing for the first time in English in this book. And it's really fabulous and interesting, and quite varied as well in what it's doing with language. Um, translated by a bunch of wonderful translators, Irina Alter, Catherine uh, Tsipela, Anna Halberstadt, Ainsley Morse, uh, and Valery Mishova. Um, and I translated uh, Simonova for this volume. It was a, a project sponsored by the Pen America um, that we did um, during the first pandemic year, mostly through Zoom contact. Um, so Fantastic. I think it's a really cool book. Everyone should get it. Fantastic. I have my Matvey Gathering Paradise is a reference to a brand new book, Dead Winter, 
uh, I'm holding it in my hand, and I would like to cede the floor to ask you to read one of the poems. Oh. I picked it out. I'll just give it to you. All right, here it is. Thank you, Al. That's, that's great. Okay, page, you said 31. Page 31, yeah. Um, it's a thrill to be here, by the way, and uh, thanks for gathering this you little book. You came all this way to hang out with us. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Um, okay, so yeah, this is a poem from Dead Winter, um, which is a chapbook published by Phonograph just this week, I think, or last week. It came out, and um, it's a part, uh, each of these poems is part of a longer series that is called From a Winter Notebook, or that is a growing or ongoing series. If You can cut all that out if you like. <laughs> Had I your hands, I'd give up my ambitions. What matters now that far away you think of nothing but what's close at hand? To win... Your pity, that it congrue to mercy, is my burden. To speak it burdens others. This posture gets the worst of me. The better to walk your mile in my shoes and get nowhere. Somewhere winds a clock. I hear its grinding gears, its bells in empty tower of my chest. Say, ancestors, they'll sigh all right. Drink until insight comes or sleep. What's liquid must pour out and vessel empty of what memories a friend to lend a hand. Penitent, gloveless, sweeping snow from our last winter's windshield. Lovely. That's from Dead Winter. Just out. Thank you so much. Well, that's all the devolving into clams we have time for on Poem Talk today. <laughs> Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House, the University of Pennsylvania, and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Kevin Platt, Matvey Yankelevich, and Ahmad Almala, and to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner. And to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing, got his work cut out for him, Zach Cardner. And a shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their generous support of Poem Talk. This is Al Filreis, and I hope you'll join us for another episode of Poem Talk. <laughs>